Hi, I'm Marcy. And I'm Akko. And welcome to the Color Pages Book Club, a bi-weekly podcast that focuses on fiction, fantasy, and magical realism written by writers from colorful backgrounds. What, what? All right, guys. So in this episode, we will be discussing Sula by Toni Morrison. Now, Marcy, this is your pick. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. So tell us a little bit why. Why did you choose Toni Morrison? I mean... There's never a bad reason to choose Toni Morrison. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, tell us a little bit about it. What was your influence here? It's really interesting that you say that because the response is kind of layered, I guess. So when I first moved to D.C., I actually started volunteering with this organization that does a lot of work with sex workers and people that use drugs in the area. And so as a part of that process, we had this like really extensive training where we talked about like the history of DC, sex work, and like kind of also talked very explicitly about issues of race and class and privilege and things like that. This sounds amazing. And so during that, it was it, it was everything. Um, during that very amazing training period, when we were actually talking about race, I remember as a part of it, we actually watched a clip that was basically Toni Morrison having this conversation with this interviewer like about like what racism is. And I actually just showed Akko this right before we recorded, but it was basically like, Someone was essentially asking, you know, what were her thoughts on racism? And, like, I think she just does such an amazing job just being like, you know, it's just, like, a huge distortion of the human psyche. It's, like, when you really think about it, like, it's crazy. If you can only be tall by someone else being on their knees, what happens when that person isn't there? Are you still good enough? Are you still powerful? Do you still like yourself? Do you still like yourself? And it was just so, the, I mean, just the intellect plus the shade just spoke to mm. me on a visceral level. And so I was like, okay, so I definitely am titillated by this author. Um, and also, like, I kind of had, like, a brief history with Toni Morrison in high school. I remember I read Beloved my senior year. And it was one of those books that, like, you know how, like, when you're younger, sometimes you read a book that, like, you know is powerful. And, like, you know is, like, you're, like, at the cusp of maybe understanding it, but you're not quite, like, you're not fully capturing it. Like, you like it, but you're like, I feel like there's something else here that, like, I'm not catching it was like kind of like that like i remember reading and being like this is really dope but also like i'm not quite sure if i'm like fully getting it and so i just when we were you know making our book list i was like i feel like tony morrison is one of those authors that like i didn't really explore like that growing up and i was like i feel like this would be a really good time just to like see what's up now that I like my ideas my ideologies and things like that are much more mature than they were when i first discovered her i think that about a lot of books mm -hmm. uh, that i read in high school and i was like well that's stupid why would every anyone ever make a poor decision in life and now that i'm like older i'm like because humans are, are humans. <laughs> made poor decisions. <laughs> right. And books are an examination of ourselves. And But I completely agree with you. You think you know it's good. You understand that theoretically. But when you have more experience, it mm -hmm. becomes more visceral and more real. Right. And also, I mean, I'm not even going to flex. Like, when I was in high school, like, a, Spark bitch, notes. a bitch was busy. And so I remember we had, like, a very specific, like, Harkness table on Beloved. So a bitch literally cranked that Spark Notes. And I was, like, I was literally in that middle circle, like... You know, I just, like, the magical realism and having a ghost, I just thought it was really interesting. And so, like, I'm just going to talk about my personal experience. It was like, I was literally just, like, bullshitting in that discussion. Wait, for anyone who, I don't know if Generation Z does this or, right. if, you know, Generation X did this, but can you explain what these circles are? Oh, yes. So, a Harkness table, in case you haven't done this, in I guess, in your academic career, basically, it's, like, these, like, awkward-ass discussion circles where it's essentially, like, four people in like a discussion group where they're basically just talking about a text at length. It's usually a book, but it can be, you know, poetry, whatever. And on the outside, usually the instructor as well as like the rest of the class would just kind of be watching their discussion and could just ask them questions at will. And so it was kind of like you're like on the spot, you're like talking with these other people, and you're like praying that like everyone else read the book. Because there were times where literally like I think it was actually when we talked about Beloved, like, I had read, so, uh, I did crack open Beloved. A bitch started. I just didn't finish it. And so I was like, okay, like, if there's, like, one person who's, like, read the book, maybe they can, kind of, like, kind of fill in some of the holes and, like, they're going to... The two of us can just... Right, we can, like, kind of flex. But I remember, like, these niggas did not read it either. So I'm just like, yeah, um, you know, like, the ghost. And everyone's like, yeah, you know, like... I just think beloved is a beautiful word. And I'm like, wow, we're really going to fail. This <laughs> is garbage. Right. Like, like who was in your, who was in, who was like on the hot spot with you was very important. Because <laughs> when it was like, it, when it was like that kid who loved reading or like that person who was like an A student, you're like, oh, bet. I just need to know a couple of quotes. Right. And we will be fine. Exactly. But when everyone else is looking at you, like you're the smartest person in the group, you're like, 
No. And I'm like, I read a third of this shit. And then the thing is, like, you can always flex, too, when there's, like, that person that really read the book, when you're like, yeah, you know, that part when, like, you know, ah, I'm for, I'm blanking on their name. You can, like, flex, like, the part on SparkNote right. that you just read. It's like, oh, yeah, girl, I'm just forgetting the name. It's like, sis, you never learned it. And then they could be like, oh, like, when Rebecca, it's like, yeah, 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 when Rebecca, da, 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 da. And, like, because you have the quote down a lot, but you don't remember the name of the person that said it. Yeah, but that time I was just like, I don't know how I survived. I, I mean, I clearly survived because we're doing this. And right. so, like, I'm just like, I need a redemption arc. Tony Morrison deserves better than that bullshit I gave her in 12th grade. So, yes. But to give you all some context on who she is. So, Tony Morrison actually holds a Nobel Peace Prize. So, I'm just going to read. Oh, what, what was that? She, she has what? Uh, uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. Just th- that one. Th- th- that Nobel Prize. Yeah, that one. So I'm just going to read her biography from the website of uh, the no- the Nobel Prize website, <laughs> by the way, <laughs> in case you forgot. Um, and I think that kind of will speak for itself. I agree. So yes. So it reads, born Chloe Anthony Wofford in 1931 in Lorraine, Ohio, the second of four children in a black working class family. Displayed an early interest in literature, studied humanities at Howard and Cornell universities, followed by an academic career at Texas Southern University, Howard University, Yale, the Yale. The, it, isn't, it doesn't say that. That's my emphasis. <laughs> and since 1989, a chair at Princeton University. That, that Princeton, by the way. She has also worked as an editor for Random House, a critic, and given numerous public lectures specializing in African-American literature. She made her debut as a novelist in 1970, soon gaining the attention of both critics and a wider audience for her epic power, unerring ear for dialogue, and her poetically charged and richly expressive depictions of Black America. A member since 1981 of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, she has been awarded a number of literary distinctions, among them the Pulitzer Prize in 1988. Okay, so uh, I didn't even know that shit. God damn. Okay, so... So Toni Morrison is it. And so I was like, you know what? We must bless the Color Pages Book Club with Toni Morrison. Right. So, yes. So, yes. So I guess sort of similar like we did last time with the fifth season. We'll kind of just start by like giving a sort of a quick plot summary. And then we'll just kind of jump into our thoughts, give some quotes eventually, and just have a discussion around the book. So I will say... First and foremost, so the version of the book that I'm reading has a foreword that's maybe like seven pages that is everything on the planet. It's, <laughs> it's, it's almost so like a good. Sh- <laughs> it's like I didn't read the foreword at first and then Marcy mm-hmm. was like, you have to read the foreword. And I read it and I was like, oh, I stupidly thought that, <laughs> that Toni Morrison, who wrote the rest of the book, would have a week forward <laughs> i was wrong it is yeah it's worth reading and i you know a lot of times you just kind of skip to the the beginning of the story right. but it's really worth reading yeah it talks a lot of basically about this tension and i think sula was correct me if i'm wrong but i think it was published in 1972 so like a long time ago right and essentially the the forward talks about how a lot of black authors which are sort of pigeonholed into this like political category Almost where like in, proving of your worth right like it's like to be a black author it was like you know, if you ever said the sky is blue, it was always like, oh, like, how is the sky blue for like a black slave in the South during this year? Or like, what does a blue sky mean in like the face of racism? You know, like it was always directed towards your experiences around race. And right. there was like this assumed servitude, this assumed suffering that um, it was in like writing. It was like that was the the key point of your existence. Yes. Like you didn't feel, you didn't sleep, you didn't eat. Every day you just walked around thinking about racism. Right. And and that sort of like limiting of black authors aren't authors. They're black authors. Exactly. And you're like, okay, but people is story. So you don't just go white authors. Right. You know, they get to be authors. Exactly. And it was talking about how for a lot of, even when you're just talking about prose, when you're talking about like diction, syntax and things like that, it's like, like, to be a black author, it was, like, you weren't allowed the aesthetic beauty that, like, white authors mm-hmm. were given. Like, you were never revered for having, like, prose that was deeply, like, touching. It was always by proxy to the ways in which you talked about race. And, like, your proximity to how people thought you should have been speaking about race. Right. And so either you didn't talk about it enough or you overexerted it or whatever. It was, like, it was so that's never... that's not really the experience. Is that really the experience of right. questioning of what it was? Exactly. As opposed to being, like, this could be one person's experience and it's also essentially complex because like you know especially doing fiction it's like i mean the possibilities are quite literally limitless and so yeah and so she just talks about that tension then she talks about how living in queens like she had these like really robust relationships with other black women and it was really powerful to kind of be in this time where like they could just have this unabashed friendship with one another that was like not interrupted by men and like that could exist in its own and how in a lot of ways, like, that friendship was... I'm not quite sure if it was, like, an inspiration, but, like, certainly you see it in Sula as well. Right. Which we'll kind of talk about at length. 
But um, but yeah, so lit is shit, and my quote is actually from from the forward, but we'll get into that a little bit later. But yes, yeah, so I guess we'll just start with the plot summary. Yeah, let's do just it. Just jump in. No origins, no like stone backs and like whatever the fuck. Like, no we, world like, building. It's gonna be it's, it's gonna be much easier <laughs> this time around. So basically, so the book, so you know, so obviously there's a character named Sula, and Sula is a girl that lives in this town called Medallion, Ohio. And so Sula is actually really good friends with this other girl named Nell. They're both the same age, and the book starts with them being both around like age twelve or so, and so. The book starts off kind of just like by like setting the scene, talking about some of the characters. It doesn't really initially talk about Nell and Sula. It kind of like talks about their parents and kind of like leads into sort of like how they exist. And so Nell essentially, you know, she lives in Medallion now, which Medallion, by the way, is it's on this hill. There's like a valley underneath it, which both of the areas are very segregated. Like so black people typically live on the hilltops, which are known as sort of like poor. It was sort of given to them because it was like, oh, like this land isn't as fertile. It's right. like there's like this whole metaphor at well, not metaphor, what's it called? Like not an Aesop fable. What's it called? Who cares? I told you how I acted in 12th grade. Girl, I don't know. <laughs> well, there's this sort of um, metaphoric story where they explain about why they ended up on the bottoms and why they call it that, where this white slave owner frees his slaves. They work to get their freedom, I believe. They, I think they, it was like some like sharecropping type of shit. Yeah, yeah. There, was no, there was no goodness of the heart here. Mm-hmm. And um, and so in the book, it states like, okay, the white slave owner was like, you know what? Actually, give, giving your freedom is not that big of a deal to me, but giving you property, like I promised... Ooh, that sounds like it could lead to like a structural wealth in the future so you can't have that but oh it, you know on this hill way up there that way up there that nobody goes to is really hard to get to um, there's this like, really beautiful um, <laughs> property and land and we actually call it the bottoms because it's the bottom of heaven and you'll you'll just love it up there and they're like we we see the hill we know that it's a crappy piece of land he's like uh-huh and they're like well we're just gonna take it because it's literally the only thing that anyone will give us so they climb up the hill and they actually start taking this terrible place and making it beautiful and it's so interesting because it's almost like at a certain point in sula it says at a certain point like sometimes it almost made you think it was the bottom of heaven like it yeah. did kind of give you that feeling that sort of which i thought was a very interesting point but mm, that is oh oh okay with these damn like Akko will really swoop in and be like so your life I'm actually just gonna like just like just rip this shit into because like (laughs) anything you thought is actually not the case um here's a poetic analysis of everything um solve the world but yes so basically so it's in this town called Medallion and like the book starts around it's like right after World War so it's like I think in like 1920 1921 and so Nell actually is the daughter of a woman named Helene who was actually born in New Orleans to a woman named Rochelle but Rochelle kind of had a bad reputation she was known as she was a sex worker and so Helene was actually raised by her grandmother and her grandmother was very much like I just gotta make sure that you don't have any of the blood that your mama has that you won't be out here like they literally call it blood yeah Basically, Helene, she grew up very, like, church-going. She was super elegant. She actually met a guy who later moved her to Medallion. And so, like, her life in Medallion was actually fairly simple. Like, she, you know, she went to the church a lot, blah, 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 blah. She was kind of sort of regal, but also very manipulative of both her husband and also Nell. And, like, kind of like a really strict, sort of orderly, like, very much, like, all about presentation type of person. Right. And so one day, actually, so this is after Nell was born and everything. So... Helene, her mother, finds out that her grandmother is actually dying back in New Orleans. And so she and Nell go on a trip down south to see her before she dies. And along the way, it was interesting because they were on, they took a train where, like, all types of bullshit racism was going on along the way. Like, at one point, like, you know, they were going all these different rest stops and, like, you know... Like, white people could use the bathrooms at the rest stops, but, like, for black people, they literally had to use the bathroom, like, in the field. Like, in the grass. It was in the grass. Like, you know, it was all types of, like, you know, the carts were very much segregated by race. It was just, like, b- bullshit. And it was wild, too, because when Helene actually got to New Orleans, her grandmother actually had already died. But her mother, Rochelle, was there. Who she hates, by the way. She, like, hates Rochelle so much. And so it was interesting because, like, Rochelle met Nell for the first time and was like, oh, my God, my grandbaby. Like, da-da-da-da. And Nell was actually really enthralled by her and, like, thought she was really interesting. And at one point, she was, like, being given a bath by Helene. And, like, basically, Nell has said something to the effect of, like, oh, like, Rochelle's really nice. Like, you know, her skin's really soft. And then, like, Helene says some shit like, oh, like, much handled things are always soft. Yeah. And I was like, oh, oh, tell us how you really feel. God damn. She's very shady. So Helene does not fuck with her mama at all. And so basically, yeah, so they both go back to Medallion. Rochelle stays in New Orleans. 
And when she's back, Nell kind of has this epiphany that she wants to travel more. She wants to explore more. And Sula was a girl that, like, she always saw growing up. And, like, there was, like, this kinship towards. But, like, Helene was always like, I don't really want you talking to that Sula girl. She's kind of weird. But basically when she came. She said that, like, her mother is grimy. Yeah, something like to that effect. Sula's mother is sexually liberated i would say and so i think yeah. that's what she meant by grimy yes and so basically she didn't want her talking to sula but basically after this trip nell felt inspired to get to know sula so that's kind of how nell is sort of like introduced initially so sula actually is <laughs> the sula story is actually like a lot more it's it's just ridiculous so basically so sula so sula was born to a mom named hannah who's actually the daughter of a woman named eva so eva has three kids Hannah, who's the oldest, who's Sula's mom. She has a daughter who's also named Eva, but who she calls Pearl. And then she has a son named Ralph, who she calls Plum. And so the story kind of starts off with, like, us learning more about, like, who Eva was and sort of how she got to Medallion and all of that. And, like, similar how we learned about Helene before exactly learned about Nell. And so so basically, so Helene, so not Helene, so Ava... So Eva, Eva <laughs> used to be married to like this like ancient nigga named Boy Boy. Oh, who, boy, boy 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 was oh my god. The fact that your name is Boy Squared Girl. Anyway, so basically We should have done. Right. We should have known. Like so basically Boy Boy was like this abuser, he was a womanizer, he was this heavy drinker, just like a not shit nigga to the T. And so basically, they had all these kids, and then Boy Boy just decided to leave. leave. It was like, oh, Eva, the three kids that are also mine, <laughs> let me just like just not acknowledge that. So Eva is, like, pressed as fuck. She was literally, like, there was actually a quote. Let me pull it up, because I actually thought it was it was wild. So it was actually really interesting, because there was actually a quote where, essentially, like, Eva was like, I cannot believe this man just left me. Like, this shit is fucking wild as fuck. But she was also like, I have three kids. And so the quote literally reads, <laughs> so this is talking about her being angry about Boy Boy leaving her. So basically it reads, when you left in November, Eva had $1.65, five eggs, three beats, and no idea what or how to feel. The children needed her, she needed money, and needed to get on with her life. But the demands of feeding her three children were so acute, she had to postpone her anger for two years until she had both the time and the energy for it. So, like, literally, Boy Boy just left her just just for nothing. Three beats? Not even Three beats not and even a dollar and 65 cents. Mm. My God. So, basically, yeah, so he leaves. Eva's struggling, but eventually she... So, one of her neighbors... So, Eva actually lives in Medallion, because also Boy Boy, like, wanted her Took to move her there or whatever. Because she, she, she yeah. lived in Virginia, but, like, it was kind of unclear, like, when they moved there. She lives in Medallion. She was really struggling. And so, one day, she, like, goes to this woman named Mrs. Suggs, who's, like, one of, like, I guess her neighbors. And she's like, oh, uh, can I just drop my kids off real quick? Like, I'll be back tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. Mama leaves for 18 months, comes back with one leg... But also some riches to right. build a house and kind of like, you she know, a whole house. have a life there. So And there's definitely some jokes about like, did she get paid for the leg? Who would pay for a black woman's leg? Right. <laughs> and then someone was like, I can see them paying for a white woman for her leg. <laughs> and you're like, now. And then someone was like, oh, like, I heard that like Miss Eva got $10,000 for her leg. And they're like, damn, like, color girl's legs going for $10,000 a piece. I mean, I thought maybe 10000 a pair, but right. one each. And like, it was just, just to put in, to put in context, Sula is like a, hilarious. a hilarious novel. Oh my God, it is wild. So basically, so she comes back, right? And so she gets this big ass house. And so like, you know, she rents it out to all these people who live in the area. So Sula's mom, Hannah, lives there along with Sula. But also Eva's daughter pearl who who was actually named eva she lives in flint michigan with her husband and plum who we learn has like just returned from war world war one um, right he has a lot of ptsd he also lives in the house as well and he actually also started this thing called suicide day where basically after the war and after seeing people just die in extremely gruesome ways like he the uncertainty of death really alarmed right. him in a way where he was like oh like i just want to have a day where like people can just like kill each other or kill the, kill themselves or whatever and just like have a day where like death is like isolated and so people were kind of like this is not what, what? right and, and they so, talk like, about how the city like he comes back with this idea his name's shadrach by the way yeah but also like i guess eva calls him plum right yeah. oh, me and marcy are still debating if those are the same person if plum and shadrach are two different people we maybe unclear. we should spark note it honestly <laughs> we probably should have shit like <laughs> 
but um, but continue. <laughs> right. So basically, Plum lives there, Hannah lives there, Sula lives there, as well as just like a motley crew of like other characters that just like randomly are there. So like for example, there's like this light skinned man named Tar Baby. Is that, he like, light skinned or is he just white? So everyone thinks he's light skinned. Eva thinks he's white. Like to be oh, shady, right. she was like, oh, like I'm gonna name him Tar Baby because Eva also has this tendency to just like name people other things. <laughs> She's like, oh, your name irrelevant because I'm gonna call you this, and everyone else will now call you this because I call you this now. And so there's this man named Tar Baby that lives there who also is like from the war and traumatized yeah. and like drinks a lot and like no one really addresses his issues but it's kind of like oh that's just our baby and then there are like these uh, there's like <laughs> <laughs> the Deweys they're like these three boys named so they're all so they're maybe like two years apart each so Eva calls all of them Dewey. All of them. Their names are not Dewey. Their names are not Dewey. They do not look the same. There's nothing really resembling any of them. But basically, I guess, like, something about their appearance. And what happens is, anytime she just finds a child in the society, in Medallion, who either is just being, like, neglected or not taken care of, she's like, she brings them in and she's like, I'll name you Dewey. And then everyone's like, but you already have a Dewey. And she's like, and? And (laughs) they're like, okay. And so she just, each time they're in the same situation, that situation. So I think one of them was like, looked like they were going to fall off a balcony or something. Another one was... Another, I don't remember what they were all doing, but they are basically neglected people that she takes in. Right. And so basically, at one point, Hannah was even like, wait, so if you have three kids named Dewey, like, how are we supposed to tell them apart? And she was like, girl, what do you mean? They all Dewey. And it was just like, <laughs> this is the, I, I, my God. <laughs> so, so basically, that's the kind of house that Sula lives in. Like, there's a lot of rotating people that come in. Like, there's, like, new couples and stuff. It's very right. much just kind of like a communal space for folks. And Hannah, who is sleeping with everyone yeah so hannah sleeps with a lot of people in medallion and very much has this relationship with sex where it's like very enjoyable she like likes it but she doesn't really like commitment she doesn't really right. want people to like be like oh like let's hang out let's go into she's like uh, uh, can we just let's just have sex Whatever. which for 1972 that's that's progressively revolutionary especially when the setting of this was in like the early 1920s right just like and so it was funny too because that's how sula sort of learns that like oh, okay sex is this thing that's enjoyable and like happens often, but Doesn't isn't need like to be stigmatized. But it's also not a big deal. It's not a big deal, right? Because right. like it's just like all she sees is like her mama having sex with these dudes, and she just emerges happy. So she's like, whatever. <laughs> like right. so that's kind of how like Sula sort of introduced to that concept. And so one day, actually, this is this is actually really sad. Um, one day, Eva. And she explains why she does this later. But basically, Plum is like struggling. Like he is just like clearly dealing with a lot of PTSD that's like unaddressed and like like people kind of accept that he's they accept him but in the sense but there's kind of like that shared understanding of like yeah he's kind of like going through a lot yeah and so one day she like goes into his room and she like hugs him she's rocking him back and forth and like basically she just realizes like the extent to which he's just like gone or like like her idea of him who he was before he left for the war is just like that's just not who he is anymore and she realizes that, like, early she thinks that he must be going through just an immense amount of suffering after the war. So afterwards, she pours a bunch of kerosene on him and lights him on fire. Yeah, that was... goes upstairs and goes to sleep. And Hannah, who that's her brother, was like, oh my god, Eva, like, plums burning, we gotta call somebody, what's going on? And she was just like, I'm going to sleep. And I was like... Um... It felt heartless. Yeah. Although later she explains the intense way, and, and we'll talk about that. But right. At the moment, it was very shocking. It was, yeah, it was it was intense. But basically after that, the book sort of then starts specifically talking about Sula and Nell, and, like, the two of them become really fast friends. Like, right. they're, de- they're described as having this, like, honestly, like, magnetic connection, this, like, deeply spiritual connection with one another. And, you know, they kind of share this, like, mutual interest in boys. Like, they vibe really well. So one day, and also this is actually sub sub part of this. This is actually another reason that I wanted to read Sula specifically by Toni Morrison because like I kind of heard that there was like some low key queer undertones, and I was like, you know, you know, I live for that shit. So eh. anyway, so basically, one day, um, they're chilling. One day, they're like, you know, at the river in Medallion, just like hanging out, Sula and Nell. And there's this little boy named who everyone calls Chicken Little, who like I'm sure that's not his name. I'm sure that's not his that's not his government, but whatever. So they call him Chicken Little. And he like rolls up and he's just like, Oh hey, what are y'all doing? Blah 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 blah. So the three of them start playing, like Sula and him climb a tree, and then afterwards, like he's like giggling and she's sort of like swinging him around. So basically she's holding him by his hands and she's kind of like twirling in a circle. So he's like off the ground twirling with her. And then somehow he loses the grip of her hand and he lands into the river. And so basically he lands in the river and like they thought he was going to come up, but he he didn't. didn't. And so they were like, oh shit. And then they also see, so looking up, Sula sees Shadrach 
standing at the other side of the river, like witnessing all of this. And so she's like, oh shit. So she runs into, so he has his own separate house. So she runs up there. She goes inside and she was just, she didn't even really ask him, but basically she went, she went to ask like, hey, did you see that? But all he says, as if he read her mind, was always. And she, like, runs out, is freaked the fuck out, is like, this is fucking crazy. They find Chicken Little's body maybe, like, a couple days later. I think they find it in the valley. Yeah. Yeah. And basically, he has a funeral and everything afterwards, and, like, the whole time, like, Sula's just, like, crying into her dress, and, like, Nell's just like, this is fucking wild. Because, like, I, yeah. I, she's like, I know I didn't do this, but, like, I know what happened. I saw what happened. I didn't say anything. None of us said anything. We just like... It's a trauma. It's a sudden, almost like end of youth type of... Yeah. Yeah. So that was just wild. And shortly after that, actually, Hannah was talking to Eva about... Basically, one day she like went into her room and was like just chatting with her, asked her if she had ever loved them and all of that. And then Eva was like, bitch, did I love you? Like, I fed you. Like, I kept you alive. Like, girl, what? Like, what do you mean? Like, did I love you? Da, 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 da. But then Hannah was like, well, um, why did you kill Plum? In that case, and she was basically, she just kind of said like, oh, well, you know, like, I just felt like he was in this space where he just wanted to. It It was more like. How would you describe that? I would say that it was a heaviness. At the beginning of the book, she has to feed all these kids. And there's a point where Plum is very sick. And like, she takes him outside in the cold and is able to like, I think he was like constipated or something. But she's able to like help him not be constipated. I think it was like sick, like he could have died sick. Right. And then she sees him lying on the bed and she talks about like, he wanted to crawl back into my room. Like he wanted to like give up on life. And I, she was like, I birthed him once. I can't do it again. And she was almost like, it was almost this desperateness. Like I cannot hold this boy up for the rest of his life. Like I already held him when I was a kid. And if you think about her leg not being there and uh, we're all kind of like, her leg no one there was no injury when she left the kids and now she yeah. doesn't have a leg it, it almost seems like she's like i have do you don't know how much i sacrifice for you guys like i it's not even a matter of how much do i love you you're asking for so much of me i think that's where she was coming from and mm. i don't know if that i don't know if that justifies lighting your child on fire in their bed but we'll talk about mental health and the issues there yeah and lack of support in a moment but i i think that's where it was and she was just like i can't do this and he's so broken that he cannot go on right um and i think that was really where she was coming from yeah so yeah so it was just it was like super heavy and then it was interesting because shortly after that it's said that like sula starts kind of acting out this is maybe like a year after the whole chicken little incident and around that time hannah has this like random dream about like getting married but like she's wearing a red dress or something like that and like i think it was like the next day she Eva was looking out of her window and she saw Hannah like lighting something. She was lighting something on fire. It was like for, I I forgot what it was, but basically she was lighting something on fire and the fire caught her dress, Hannah's dress. And so she like lit herself on fire. So Eva sees this and it's like, oh shit. And like, so she literally burnt, like she burst the window and like tries to jump out and like land on Hannah and try to take out the fire, but she misses. And so like Eva jumps out of like a two story window, lands on the ground, hard as shit. She's mind you, she's, old and like right. has like all this like shattered glass everywhere so that's and a she's mess. like crawling towards her daughter trying to like do some semblance of something right but then basically hannah ends up running away and like she eventually... as she's running the fire is like becoming worse because right she's running and Ex- on fire exactly so essentially it's getting worse and worse she they're eventually able to take it out but then like when they go to the hospital she like dies while she's there yeah so what happens is they like oh they're like we'll put out the fire but it causes more smoke that like sears her whole skin like when they pour water on her just this is why by the way just public service announcement this is why they tell you to get a fire blanket because you pour hot water onto a flames and water heats up so that's the water sears her skin even more. So she mm-hmm. dies on the way to the hot. Look, if someone is burned that badly, yeah, the expectancy of them living through that is pretty low. But she dies on the way to the hospital. Eva actually rides to the hospital as well since she, you know, jumped out a window. Yeah. And um, with everyone's so consumed with this woman who's been burned to death that they actually forget about Eva until, like, someone's like, there is blood pouring out from this room over here. Does someone want to check if there's someone in there? Right. And they go and they're like, oh, yeah, Eva, you're still alive. And they save her life, which I think is another point for Eva that's, like, uh, <laughs> very intense. But, yeah. yeah. And, yeah, so basically it was interesting because Eva was chatting with some friends afterwards. And, like, she was saying that, like, after she had jumped out of the window, she looked at me and she, she saw Hannah burning. But she also saw Sula, like, standing on the back porch just, like, watching her mom. Right. And, like, everyone was like, oh, no, like, I'm sure that baby was traumatized. She was, like, shook. She didn't, like, know what to do. But, like, it was like, no, 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 no. I think Sula, she looked, she looked interested. But, you know, there was a point earlier in the book where Sula overhears woman talking. And this is actually right before Chicken Little dies, mm-hmm. where she hears Hannah say, there's a bunch of women in town talking. They're like, oh, we love our children. Everyone loves our children. Hannah's like, yeah, I don't know. 
You know, she gives a very <laughs> lukewarm at best response. And I don't think she thinks Sula overhears it, but she does. And I think that causes some type of damage of a sort. Mm, um, so I think I then that when I heard read this part, I was like, oh, boy, this is all going to come up in part two. Yeah. And so, and so basically to end part one, right after all of this happens, Nell eventually ends up marrying this guy with like extremely fragile masculinity. His name is Jude Green. Um, and basically Sula helped to plan the wedding, but it's sort of said that like the last scene is essentially like Nell's dancing with Jude and like she can kind of tell that Sula's leaving the house because, you know, they had this wedding in this house. And essentially like her relationship with Jude kind of eclipses her friendship with Sula for about 10 years or so. So it's implied that there's going to be like a time jump and then we'll kind of like see where we left off. So that's Sula. For now, part one. Part one. (laughs) Yes. So let's take a break real quick and we can just jump back and talk about our feelings and thoughts. And we're back. So after that delightfully depressing summary we can now tell you our (laughs) thoughts and feelings so just talking about sort of the tone and the structure of Sula first of all just I now realize while reading it why she has a Nobel Prize because her intentionality around word choice is astounding like the way she's able to describe and create scenes that are so honest but poetic that's Mm. what it is yeah they're honest and true and real but they're beautiful not that they're pretty or that they are good or happy but they're beautiful and then some of them are just some of her lines are also just accurate and succinct and so well explained issues in our society so i'll give like two examples a couple that show the beauty and some that show the pain so for one of the quotes she's describing the bottoms and she said well first she has a great read she's like before they gentrified this area it was called medallion and she 1972 she's like before they gentrified this place which y'all you know you did it was called this and in her foreword she talks about how she's like i don't question if these are realities i just write a world a world where they're already accepted as the reality because that's the world we live in right so for instance she says this one line she says just a nigger joke the kind white folks tell when the mill closes down and they're looking for a little comfort somewhere Mm. and i was like that though that that's two sentences but it's so like accurately explains the um why class and race are different for one thing or the complexity of racism so it's not just a matter of like oh people don't like each other it so well and so clearly explains the structural issues behind this divide between people and i you know i can explain it for days but as you can see she so succinctly tells you exactly what it is so i was so impressed by that but then another one that's so beautiful and poetic as she's describing the bottoms and she says just a neighborhood where on quiet days, people in valley houses could hear singing sometimes, banjos sometimes. And if a valley man happened to have business up in those hills, collecting rent or insurance payments, he might see a dark woman in a flower dress doing a bit of a cakewalk, a bit of a black bottom, a bit of a messing around to the lively notes of a mouth organ. It, it, the way she mm. writes just feels good in your mouth to say it, right? It just, right. it's like, it has texture almost. You can feel it. And I love that about the way she writes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, oh my God. Yeah, that's honestly, the writing style, like you said, it's just, I just love how flexible it is even with tone because like this book is like, I mean, yes, tragic, but also just like, Absurd. Fucking ridiculous. Hilariously. I just, I remember, so we're going to talk about the absurd part real quick, but I remember even when Chicken Little died, I remember, oh my God, let me find the quote. Mm. So this is essentially describing right after Chicken Little's funeral. So it says, Nell and Sula stood some distance away from the grave. The space that had sat between them and the pews had dissolved. They held hands and knew that only the coffin would lie in the earth. The bubbly laughter and the press of fingers in the palm would stay above ground forever. And I was like, oh my God. Like, you. Uh, oh, uh, like, I was yeah. just like, what? Uh, wow. Exactly. That's real. Cause yeah, like, it describes very explicitly, like, the press of his fingers in her palm and then it just dissipated. And that pressure just always being there. And I'm like, that's mm-hmm. such a, like, small ass detail. Like, but it's so accurate. But it's so important. Yeah. Like, oh my God. It's just, yeah. So the way she puts words together is truly, they're like, 
Literally, there were so many moments where I just was reading this book and I was like, mmm, mmm. Like, they just thought I was eating. Like, they were like, what is so delicious, girl? Like, what are you doing? But, you know, it's like people always say, like, the dead haunt you. And you can understand that in a theoretical way. But Toni Morrison will be like, she's like, the dead haunt you. It's almost like, comma, because, you know, that sense, that physical feeling they left on you is still there. And that's what brings her her writing to another level because you're like, It seems so simplistic, but it's almost like out of all the things, yes, that was it. That was the thing that made this clear to me. That was what I needed to focus on to understand. And it's just, Toni Morrison's like, I mean, gas me up more if you want. Like, it's fine. (laughs) But but also, I I read Beloved. I read The Bluest Eye. I read, um, what's the one with Milkman? Oh, my God. Song of Solomon. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I love about this book is, in fact, how... She shows the world's absurdity. That's where the hilarity comes from in this book. Because you'll be reading something, you're like, that's tragic and true and so funny. Because that makes no sense. And yet, it is exactly what would happen. Right. And you're just like, that is funny. Oh, my God. (laughs) Even if it's sad, that's funny. And in fact, she says that. She says, talking about pain, she says, otherwise the pain would escape him, even though the laughter was part of the pain. Oh, my God. And it shows this duality of the- Like, God damn, Toni Morrison. Can I get a break? Part of me just wants to read the book on the podcast and just I won't even give commentary I'll just ha- read her book and then you guys can honestly if y'all just, just like become like a Toni Morrison like audiobook club like that's fine <laughs> we, we that. will be just oh my god we will be so fucking happy doing that my god but yeah but also speaking of the funny can we please talk about the Deweys like oh my god <laughs> like these motherfuckers are wild bruh <laughs> so part of them having the same name is weird because like they don't look anything alike. Nope. And, like one of them is like not even black. Like he's like Latino. Yeah. Like, no, well, he's like mixed Latina black. Yeah. And one of them is very very dark skinned, and one of them's I think like medium colored. Yeah. <laughs> and they're all different ages. It's like seven through like, and I thought they're gonna be like oh seven six five. They're like seven like four. What was it? Four and two or In, something? Like two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was like so absurd. I mean, These things like clearly are not the same age bracket. They don't look the same. No, whatever. But uh, weirdly. No one can tell them apart. No because, one. Because, like, maybe it's because they all are named the same thing. They just, like... Are and they're low-key. inseparable. They're inseparable. Even... Oh, my God. There was literally a scene where they went to school. And they wanted to take all of them to be in the first grade, which was appropriate for the one that was seven, but the one that was... Maybe even four. Maybe maybe four. And the one that, but the one that was two, like, they were no. like... And the teachers literally were like, um, they're... They, they cannot all be in the first grade. <laughs> like, that doesn't make any, any sense. sense. And they were like, and then like, I remember, I think it was Eva or Hannah, somebody was like, well, like, well how do you know that at the same age? Like, you know, like, these boys, they might just be a little bit smaller. And they're like, well, last year when this boy was one in <laughs> kindergarten, like, we, like, the way time is set up, like, I know this thing is too. He, he, he can't be in first grade. <laughs> like, it like, doesn't make sense. And then they, what do they say? They're like, well, they all came to the house at the same time, as if that solves the problem. <laughs> I guess the point the teacher's like, fine, just like, fine. Like, she just like ho-hums and like writes all of them down as first grade and then six years old. And it's so funny because she's like, she thought that she would be able to tell them apart. <laughs> but she like found out at a certain point that she was like, um, what's that Dewey? Who's that Dewey? Yeah, just call the Deweys. <laughs> and like, so it's like, so it's weird because like they're three very distinct people, but they always function as a group. And like, they're never really described individually. They're always like, no. unit. and they're always like, very mischievous and they like don't age like even yeah. when they get older like when like Nell gets married like the Deweys are described like being in bullshit like just running around acting like they're seven years old even though these niggas are clearly probably around uh, Sula's age at this point like and they're like teens right and even with Eva they were like so did you did you run out of names like did you forget that there were two other Deweys right. like what exactly is going on? And then, like, the Deweys and Tar Baby are weirdly part of, like, Plum's, like, suicide day that, like, right. no one, like, he, like, literally parades around town and is, like, for suicide day and, like, the locals are like, oh, girl, like, I'm gonna get lunch with you, but not on suicide day. Like, like I don't I'm want gonna, that like, noise in the background. Right. But, like, Tar Baby and the Deweys, like, enthusiastically join in the antics. And it's I'm like just, a like, parade. They don't know, obviously they don't kill themselves, but it's right. a parade. But it's just like, oh, my God. They were just so ridiculous. And I just felt like, there were just so many points where I was just, like, I was like honestly kiki. I was getting my entire life reading this book. Like I was like, this was shit is funny as fuck. Like I did not expect it. <laughs> like my god, oh gosh. But yeah, and and not for nothing. Like aside from the Dewey's just being like funny as fuck and just like ridiculous. Like I think, in a way, having this like very seemingly light, hilarious tone, it just made me feel like really connected to the characters very quickly. Even though the Dewey's like they're they're not really described that much individually, and they're just kind of this like comedic piece. Like it just. 
them existing just made the community it made me fall in love with the community and right. that's one thing that I like love like when an author can like make it's not even just authors but like you know in movies whatever like storytelling like, storytelling like they can get you really involved in like the main central characters but like the periphery the environment is just kind of like eh whatever but I feel like Morrison just does a great job of just setting up the community in a way that's just like it makes me just really Accepting. feel for these characters like I like care what happens to like yeah. Plum and the Deweys and Tar Baby and all these like ra- and it's not because like- you know them deeply but because you feel them deeply exactly yeah and I actually feel like and this comes to a bigger theme in this story and of maybe blackness as a culture more generally Twain Morrison explains the phenomenon of blackness in which you don't actually need to know everything about the person it's just fine like right. as long as you can fit them it's fine and there's this quote when um shadrach starts the suicide day even with the suicide day like at first everyone's like this is really weird and then after a while they explain like it just becomes part of the zeitgeist it just becomes right. part of the culture <laughs> you know they're like i don't want to get married on suicide day because he's going to be banging the pots outside and then they'll be like oh there was a i had a very like strenuous labor it started on saturday it went past suicide day and you know just like as right. if it's like to another name for tuesday exactly um and I, I thought that was really cool and, and there's a quote about shadrach when he comes back to medallion and they said once the people understood the boundaries and the nature of his madness they could fit him so to speak into the scheme of things mm. and it's kind of the same thing with tar baby and the deweys and everyone is kind of a little bit misfitty it's like as long as we can f- we'll just find a way to make your misfittiness work in our society right and it's kind of beautiful in a way I-, I was thinking about it deeply but part of it's beautiful but the flip side of it is maybe a compliance with things that we shouldn't which mm. starts to make me think about things like r kelly and things like that that are happening currently and have been happening but yeah it- it- and it's the- so there's the beauty of that of the right. things can just fit where i think a lot of times and and um white supremacy or it's about exclusion it's about if you're one drop you know you no longer fit in this like very restrictive idea right. of what is the society and so i thought that was really interesting i really liked how she explained that to us or how she not explained described she demonstrated it yeah and it was just like so yeah and that's the thing it, it is a two-sided coin because even when you look at someone like shadrach and even to a certain extent sula like it's like there's something wrong. There's something going on. And it's like, and it's interesting because Shadrach, even like when Sula had like ran into his place and was going to ask him like, oh, did you see anything? And like, he like, it was a weird scene because she had walked inside and he had kind of like blocked the doorway with his body. And like, it, it was seemed kind of, like it was going to go somewhere else. Yeah. It just seemed like it was a re- like he was like trying to intimidate her with like his stature and his size and like by blocking her exit and she was able to like escape. But like, I mean, it, it's not like he chased her, but it was, just, there was like this menacing kind mm-hmm. of undertone to it where it was like. I can understand if we just have this, like, kind of cultural idea that, like, people just are who they are, or whatever, like, Shadrach's kind of right. weird, Sula's kind of them, blah, blah, blah. It's Then like, violence it, can happen. Or even the fact that Chicken Little dies and no one is like, how did Chicken Little, who was alive and walking down the street in this town that he always lives in and is right. perfectly fine, suddenly end up in a river that he's never been before? You know, I mean, no one questions. They accept, you know? Right. And that's that's the flip side to it. Like you said, like, Shadrach's a little weird, so that weird thing he's doing is like, yeah. you know what I mean? I agree with you. Yeah, and even like with Sula, like the fact that people know that there's something like a little bit off about her, but they're mm-hmm. like, eh, she's fine. Which is not to say that like exclusion is necessarily the appropriate response, but it's just like, but how do we accept one another while but in other ways... also address the issues. Addre- exactly. Because yeah. Shadrach, it's not like he's just like emptily, flippantly, just like ridiculous. Like, the, trauma. He has hella trauma and hella PTSD that he's right. trying to process. And it's like, by us just being like, oh, Shadrach. It's like, that's not really... It doesn't, it doesn't, it doesn't do, heal anything. Right. You know? And I think it's hard because it goes into a whole conversation about mental health. In one way, how do you... It's 1920. So even... Honestly, even the white people don't have mental health. Listen, like, after <laughs> the terms shell shock, those ended up... I think those came after, in the 21st century. Like, after World War One, people were traumatized and nobody had the words to describe it. PTSD right. wasn't a phrase people not use. Thing. So add to that the trauma of that but also there's no resources so it almost made me think like there is a double penalty for going to war in the 20th century as a black person who's going to come back to america with no resources and no gains you you fight for a country that is not going to in any way give you any gains like that's such a double a such a double jeopardy in a way and so then how do you go back to your community and ask them for support when the community like they're like we us you want us to 
we have no money. Right. So you kind of, maybe you, you just accept and you're like, that's all we can really give you. You can come back, you know, we'll right. try to fit you in somehow. Yeah. Um, but do we have any more, you know? Yeah. It's like, how do you address it? And like, yes, like communal belonging, communal acceptance is so important. So important. But it's also just like, but yeah, it's, I don't know. It, just, it really just made me wonder, like, yeah, just the multiplicity of that sort of like, we're just going to take everyone at face value. Everyone's just how they are whatever right you know? which which is so good and yet so, and i love right. that tony morrison complicates the narrative because she says it's so good and also it's so bad right and i'm just like Ugh. And it just <sighs> even makes me think about my own family and how like that there is like a right. kind of similar and, and i think that's like why this book is just so resonant because it's just like she she describes experiences in ways that are just like so like having gone through being from a black family and all of that just like I'm like this few, like there's a familiarity here where it's like even in family functions when like yeah there is that kind of similar kind of like everyone's just kind of who they are and like you know this person's kind of like this or this person kind of like and it's just like there is like it's not to say that there's no tension there's no like there's never any like conflict but it's just that it's like it's not confrontational almost right it's until kinda, you burn someone's bed to the ground yeah so it's just yeah so I think I just love the way she wrote community in a way that like kind of invites you in and gets you invested, but also like has you kind of analyzing like, ah, there's like some operations here that aren't necessarily healthy. Yeah. But, right. Uh, because Plum did, that's not how that was supposed to end. Like we understand Eva, the reader, we understand like the intensity of what you're going through. Right. But th- th- <laughs> that's not, how, that still doesn't make the end. Like, you exactly. know, it's still, that's not how that should end. And there wasn't really a, no one was like, no one Isn't asked. it suspicious that Eva just like went upstairs and fell asleep when her son was being burned? Like you know, like it's like, and yeah, there's like this lack of like recoil really for people's right. actions. Like things just happen, and it seems like it's like, oh well, I guess we're just moving on now. Right. It's like there's no. It's not to say that like a carceral response is always the most effective or even appropriate one, but it is. It does make me question. It's like if people can go through such like harrowing events and like y'all just move on. It it's, it also kind of makes me wonder too. It's like, well, how. Like, what exactly is the glue of this community if people can just, like, kind of mm. exit and, like, we just move on? And, like, there's no, like, it's not to necessarily police how people process, like, grief and loss, but it's just, it does make me wonder. I'm like, how strong is this community, really? I think, for me, it almost gave the feeling less of that they're not strong, but, like, things are not okay. Yeah. And I think this is why, even though this book is realistic, it uses magical realism in a way or subtle fantasy in a way that I find very astounding, right? Because it's like making this joke or making things bigger than they are or pointing out the absurdity and you start to realize like, this is, this is weird. Like, this is almost like similar to a thousand years of solitude mm. where it's like, this is a, an odd thing and odd phenomenons keep happening, but we act like they're just normal phenomenons. Right. And she's pointing out like, that's actually how we live in, in America as black people. Like odd, weird things happen all the time. And we just, we keep going. Like, mm-hmm. And, and then that, that doesn't mean things are okay. It just means that's how this reality works for us. And that's something we have to like piece through somehow among ourselves or maybe through literature. One thing I do want to explore a little bit, because I, I did allude to this earlier. I read some blogs where people were talking about, as a queer person, Sula was a really important text for me. Like, it was really beautiful. And so I would love to talk about Sula and Nell's relationship a little bit and kind of, like, sort of understand that a little bit better. Right. Because I think in some ways, though the two are, like, magnetized towards one another, I'm, like, I don't love the dynamic. Like, like, I like the dynamic, but I do think there is potential for it to get a little sour. And it is implied that, like, there is going to be some sort of, like, falling out or, like, some distancing later. But, like, I think Sula, in a lot of ways, benefits from having someone like Nell as a friend. Because it's almost that idea of, like, if you're friends with someone who's, like, fairly, quote-unquote, normal, it's like, you yourself individually don't attract that much attention. Mm. So, I feel like in that, however, there is this kind of, like... This power imbalance that exists. But the two of them are kind of, like, bound together by this, like, horrible thing that's happened that, like, they're kind of... They both saw the Chicken Little and died. Right. Well, Sula was the one swinging him. But, although, I mean, I think it would be intense to say Sula murdered him. Because it... Mur- I don't think. Like, it was... It was an, ac- yeah. an accident, which yeah. is not, you know... Doesn't amongst change children, the outcome. Which makes you... You're like, people should have been around. But anyway. Yeah. <laughs> It's hard because it's a 12-year-old. Uh, it's hard. Yeah. Um, but I, I agree with you. There is something about their dynamic. But there's that one part um, in the story where Nell is actually being bullied by 
these white kids and they're poor white kids who are Irish, so they're isolated from the white community because people don't know this, being Irish and Catholic in the early 20th century was not great for your social status and acceptance into Anglo-American society. So they're poor men, and there's like four of them, and they're bullying Nell, like physically, they're pushing her around and stuff. And so Nell and Sula start taking the long way home. And even though no one says why they're taking the long way home, everyone knows why they're taking the long way home. And then one day, Sula says, let's take the shortest way home. Even though, again, no one says it, but they know those boys will be there. So they walk down the street and they see the boys standing there. And the boys are excited to, again, mess with a bunch of young girls who they're clearly bigger than and stronger than. But whatever. That's mm-hmm. that's an absurdity in and of itself. But that's fine. It's just a violence. Apparently, the world accepts is violence towards black girls. But um, Oof, come on. So they're about to start bullying her. And Sula takes out a pear knife. You think she's about to stab these young men, which you're like, well, Sula's, she's, <laughs> she's a little high strung, this Sula, so I can see it happening, but she doesn't do that. In fact, she gets on the ground and she like puts her hand down and she slices her own hand with the pear knife and she just looks at them and says, if I could do that to myself, think about what I could do to you. Come on. And these boys leave, I mean, at least they recognize the situation that they were in and were like, we will not be staying. They're like, we actually don't want these problems. Right. So we will be exiting. And they like, quickly up and left. And I was like, that's the about the right response there. So you kind of see that like as much as Sula is gaining from Nell, Sula's sort of um lack of emotional expression or mm. is useful, especially it makes you wonder talking again about mental health about that power in a racist society. Like right. how does someone being less emotionally affected help them or even benefit them in a society that consistently disregards their emotional well-being and health. Mm. So so I thought that part was very interesting. And to a certain extent, how that lack of emotional effect can be kind of a protective. Yeah, it keeps you alive even. Right. You know? From really absorbing the like inklings of messaging right. and whatever day-to-day interactions that try to and almost feed society, you a message that you know is a lie. Exactly. And it's almost like society needs you the society is giving you almost this unfair choice. Either give in to all of their negative mm-hmm. um, emotional energy and abuse that they're giving you or have absolutely no emotional resonance. Mm. So who? What's, this, what's absurd? Like Sula's mental state or the society? What's sick, I guess, is a real question. Yes. Sula's mental state or the world that she lives in. Right. You know? So... Wow. Oh my, that is, listen. I was wondering. That's a word. Mm. No, that's real. That is real as shit. God damn. Huh. It was a good book. There is one thing I want to talk about that yes. I cannot. Can we talk about Boy Boy and that lemonade? Oh my God. Yes. Can we, can we talk about it? <laughs> Girl. So Boy Boy, this uh. is, this is, this is in the middle of the book somewhere. It's not even in, I mean, we're jumping real back in the book, but there's a point where Boy Boy rolls up back at Eva's place. Eva, by the way, no longer has a leg because Boy Boy left her. Yes. And he's like, can Correct. I have some lemonade? And you're like, Beyonce, this is, this is, you know, a hundred years too soon, but, you want some lemonade? So she makes clearly, him the lemonade. Pre-lemonade. <laughs> clearly pre- Because in this era, lemonade is a whole different situation. Listen. And Boy Boy drinks the lemonade, just kiki a little bit about the kids, who doesn't want to see the kids, his his kids. The kids are his oh, kids. Like his children. Doesn't yes. want to see them. And then he goes outside, and he has this other woman in a green dress. And it's like very clear that Boy Boy now has money, and he has a beautiful wife. And it's almost like he looks at Eva as if like, oh, I got out of that one. Like, I'm not with this like one-legged you know right. mammy type character and i was and she like he like whispers something in the the woman in the green dress's ear and she laughs and they get back in their car and drive away and i was like i don't you I, piece of shit my whole brain turned off <laughs> i was like <laughs> i cannot i i i especially she lost a leg a, leg. a whole you leg you just you only get two. Oh my god! She lost one for you. I just, I could not. And your kids, by the way. And, and you, your you, kids still don't want to see them. The discomfort that might have erupted from that conversation is oh molecular compared to like the amount of like mm. sacrifice that like she went through to mm. raise fucking kids with oh by the way five eggs three beets and a dollar and goddamn sixty five cents like five my beets. god what a piece of shit I can't, which just goes back to that absurdity thing why is that okay for you boy boy to do that why does society accept that. But not other things. And it's so arbitrary. And you wonder 
if it's arbitrary, then why did we choose this one to be the? Right. Ugh, it's so intense. This book is, y'all. This book is good. Yeah, y'all read this goddamn book. Oh my god, <laughs> it is so good. And also, so just really, I guess two really quick points before we do our quotes, and then we should probably wrap up. So I wanted to talk also about sort of a similarly resonant scene for me. Do you remember that scene where it was when? So it was when Helene and Nell had first gotten on the train, and they were like late getting to the train, the train going down to New Orleans where she was going to see her grandmother, and. They were in a rush, and so they ended up accidentally getting on a car for white passengers. And so Helene, immediately realizing her mistake and, like, kind of catching the glares of everyone around her, was like, oh, shit. And, like, she kind of, like, walks. But instead of getting off the train and walking to the car for, I guess, colored patrons, like, she just, like, walks through the train itself, like, rather than, like, getting off entirely. And so this conductor follows her. And she's, like, mind you, in a car with, like, other black people at this point, like, where she's, quote, supposed to be. And he was like, oh, like, what are you doing? Like, what was that? Blah, blah, blah. And she was just like, oh, you know, I made a mistake. Like, I accidentally got on the wrong car, blah, blah, blah. And mind you, there's, like, these three, there's, like, three or four, I think, black guys who are, like, observing the situation, not weighing in. They're just, like, kind of watching it all play out. And the guy was like, oh, well, I forgot what he said. But it was something to the effect of, like, you know, like. He starts calling, he's like, there's no room for mistakes on this train, gal. Right. And she clearly is, like, talking down. It's, like, the same way, you know, people used to call people boy, like, right. black, black men boy. And so he was like, get out of my way, whatever, whatever. He pushes past her. And she, as a response, just kind of smiles. But, like, Tony Morrison described it as a smile that was, like, it was, like, not, it, it wasn't really normal. It was, like, very much disproportionate with, like, what had just happened. She described right. it as if, like, it was, like, a puppy or, like, a dog eagerly returning to a butcher shop that they had just been violently kicked out of. Like, mm. just kind of, like, this, like, oh, yes, like, hi, whatever, whatever. And the the guys, the black guys observing this seem pretty upset and, like, pissed at her reaction. To the point where, like, she expected one of them to, like, help lift her things into, like, I guess, the luggage space above the seat. And, like, no one even looked at her. Like, and no yet one she kind of like, knew they wouldn't in a weird way. Yeah. And then they, they kind of described how, like... Nell was looking at her mom's dress and how she could, she noticed that there was like... It was slightly undone. It was slightly undone. And it was just like, and I, I don't know, maybe there was just like something I didn't read in between the lines, but like, I was just a little bit confused by that response. Like, I was like, I don't see, I don't understand the, this anger that's resulting from... I see what you're saying. interaction. Like, y'all understand this survival mechanics. Like, like, if she had just been like, I don't give a fuck, whatever. Like, you know, like, like she, like, what options did she really have? I just don't really understand why they were so angry. So I think a couple of things. So I think the smile to me, and sort of like the way she puts on her dress and tried to, like, get a heavy but, like, beautiful dress. I think when we now talk about breaking down respectability, and it's true, it needs to be broken down, it has so many issues, but respectability was almost your only defense. And think about it, if you live in a, a racist, segregated society, your only defense is, oh, I'm going to put on good clothes because then like you technically can't say anything to me even though you know you know that that's not true they can at any point they can take away your humanity but you're putting on these nice clothes as a way to kind of guard yourself or or shield yourself and i think the smile is the same thing it's i can't yell at the conductor for being an asshole about Mm -hmm. me on the train i don't get the respect of white woman i don't get the protection of white woman so you almost put on this this over-exaggerated, creepy smile because it's like, it's a defense. It's a guard. It's the right. only response you really have. And I think her dress being undone, especially for Helene, who was so put together mm-hmm. and so rigid and so careful, was almost this showing of like, in the society, like racism at any point can like get into your shield, can get right. into your guard. There is no shield. There is no guard. It can expose you. Mm. You, you know, it, it has this power of exposure. And I think the men's response, at first I was like, well, that wasn't helpful. But I think it was, and I think a lot of black literature talks about this, this inability to save this woman in any capacity, this emasculation, this complete, and they're angry at themselves for their own inability to do anything about this. Mm. And so that's projected back on the woman, you know? Yeah. So they're sitting there and they know that in the society, they can't stand up and like be like, leave this woman alone because- they might get lynched, honestly. It's yeah. 1920. Like, they're they lynching people in the 1950s. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so I think that's that anger is that inability to move, that repression, that sort of um, watching something happen and being able to absolutely nothing about it. Mm-hmm. And so all you can do is feel anger. And where do you project that anger? On the only person who you feel like you can. Exactly. That's wrong. And that's why you have, you know, 
abuse towards black women in a lot of ways, especially in the past mm. in those societies. But that's the frustration. So I can understand that. Where does the hatred go when it can't go to the person who's doing the offense? It right. goes internally or it goes to the people closest to you. Yeah. So. Wow. That's what I thought anyway. That really puts it in context. I, I was legitimately <laughs> confused. I was like, why are y'all mad? I just, I like, I did not understand it. I was like, she just smiled at this conductor because she literally could do nothing, nothing else. else. What the fuck else was she supposed to like? Why are y'all mad? Like, what? But, but. And then maybe that way, that if you, yeah, I don't know. And maybe if you blame her, you don't have to think about your own weaknesses. That's really. That's really it. Ugh. That's really it. That and then also no hard. one would care. Yeah. And no one would care. So it's just. Yeah. Yeah. So that. I'm really, I'm actually really glad that I brought that up because for a second I was like, dude, I really, we really got to talk about the same. But I was like, but I'm actually, yeah, that's real shit. And I guess lastly, and it's just more of like an observation. I just, I also loved how, especially in Hannah's case, you know, RIP. Um, I liked the way that sexuality was framed. It was something where I felt like the way it was described was in a way where it was just like Hannah just had like an understanding of herself in a way that was kind of like, a bit contrary to like i guess like what she was socialized with but like people understood that there was like a power right in it men and women alike i mean they even describe how like men who knew i guess like what her reputation was like they like didn't talk shit about her like they were like oh yeah there was like this like yeah there was just like this acknowledgement that like kind of similar to i guess what we were talking about earlier is like Mm. everyone kind of has their personality everyone has their thing and so it's like this is hannah's thing i loved in this context that it wasn't negative like because you saw the negatives of it being but like for this it kind of felt nice that like blackness was associated with a freeing of sexuality like well you know we're accepting so like it's not a big deal and it does what she does that's just how she lives yeah i kind of liked it yeah so it was cute it was cute but yes she's not alive though there is that right she died like 20 pages later so fuck but um, real quick, so we actually, so I'm not sure if you have a quote because I mean you was really oh I did all my quotes. Bad. But real quick, then I think this is actually probably a good place to stop. So like I mentioned, the forward was fucking amazing, and it really I was literally reading the shit on the train, and I was like, oh girl, I'm about, I'm ready for this meal because this book is about to be it. And so there was a quote at the very end that I thought was really, I mean, just telling given the themes of Sula, but also something that I don't know, I just thought was like really powerful. I just wanted to kind of leave you all with. So in the forward, to kind of give a context, yeah, you know, we had talked about how being a black author, everything had to be about race in a way that was like, you know, aligned with suffering. And then Morrison kind of goes on to describe some of her relationships with other women at the time. So like in writing Sula, she really wanted to explore this idea of like friendships between black women and like what that looks like, kind of like uninterrupted and allowed to sort of exist unabashedly in a way that she had kind of experienced in her own life living in Queens and stuff like that in the late 60s, early 70s. So she ends her forward actually with the following words. Outlaw women are fascinating, not always for their behavior, but because historically women are seen as naturally disruptive and their status is an illegal one from birth if it is not under the rule of men. In much literature, a woman's escape from male rule led to regret, misery, if not complete disaster. In Sula, I wanted to explore the consequences of what that escape might be on not only a conventional black society, but on female friendship. In 1969 in Queens, snatching liberty seemed compelling. Some of us thrived, some of us died, all of us had a taste. Mm. And so I was like, I. I, I, mm. I, I <laughs> it's just so perfect. It's just like you said, it literally feels so good in my mouth. I'm like, did I write these words myself? Because, like, my God, like, it just, I'm, I'm literally bursting at the seams to see what happens with this. Cause I think Me especially too. this theme of outlaw women, I think, I mean, the book is called Sula, so I'm going to imagine that Sula is in fact, is going to be sort of like in that role. Um, and I guess in, in terms of other things that I think might happen next, I think the whole thing, yeah, with let's get into Little, predictions. Yeah, I think the whole thing with chicken little, I think will resurface in a way that's kind of, I'm not sure how, but it might be the undoing of Sula. I think she's going to have a height. And I think this, the chicken little thing is going to be yeah. what brings her down. So I think, you know, Sula is going to experience given that she isn't as close to Nell. I think she will sort of have this sort of pariah status for a while. I do think that like Jude in a lot of ways will feel, I mean, it's implied that his masculinity is very fragile. I think in a lot of ways he'll be very jealous of Nell's relationship with Sula. And I think like, he'll end up being a bad guy. Yeah, I don't think she's going to be great. Like, no. he, he, I think he's going to drive them apart in a way where he feels, like, threatened by their energy. Not necessarily right. if it's even a sexual energy. But also, my, I, we don't really... We don't know We yet. don't really know. Yeah. Like, it is, it's narrated in a way where it's kind of like they're friends, Nell and Sula. But, like, there is, like, this chemistry, this magnetism that, like, Has hasn't been... really been labeled as, like, you know, 
is it purely platonic? Is it romantic? What's going on? Yeah. So I think Jude will be, you know, innocent about that. Right. Type, right. But I do think that like Nell and Sula in the end, I hope at least, I hope their friendship, even if it goes through some like rough patches, will remain intact and will be an integral piece in, I guess, how their lives continue in Medallion and beyond. Mm, I like that optimism. I'm not as optimistic. Oh I, I don't know what will happen, but I don't... Maybe I'm taking too much from, like, the bluest eye or beloved, and I'm like, Tony Morrison's stories are not happy. Even Song of Solomon is not happy. It's bittersweet. But um, we'll see. I, I am a little less optimistic, but I hope I am proven wrong. I think we'll finally figure out what happened to Eva's leg. But, you know, my predictions are never correct, so we might never find out. And, uh, of course, yeah, I think Jude's a bad guy. I think that's going to end negatively. If I say what I want to happen, just like the quote, I want Sula to turn into this, like, badass outlaw who's going around, like, stealing money from banks and paying reparations like a Robin yes. Hood throughout the Midwest. <laughs> Obviously, it's not. Like, <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> if there was a book like that, someone would have been like, have you read Sula? Where like, you know, but um, <laughs> I, that's what I want. So. Right. <laughs> oh, that would be so fucking late. Oh, my but God. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. We shall see. Yes, we will. But yes, so thank you all so much for listening. Next time, you know, we'll talk about part two of what happens in Sula and conclude this discussion. Until then, feel free to send us an email at thesecoloredpages at gmail.com. Feel free to send us any thoughts you have on the show, any book recommendations, yeah, just any general thoughts and things like that. We'd love to sort of read your comments and maybe even highlight them on the show. We'll see. We also have a website at thesecoloredpages.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at The Colored Pages. But yes, Akko and I will be back soon. But until then, stay colorful!